Let me encourage you to open the Word of God to 2 Peter, the first chapter. 2 Peter, chapter 1. One of the most common questions upon the hearts of many Christians, one of the greatest burdens that many believers bear is connected with the idea of salvation and one's personal assurance of obtaining it. The questions go like this. Am I truly saved? How can I know or can I know that I am truly a child of God? There are some in Christendom, and I use that term in its broadest context, who uh, say you can't know. You, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you've experienced, you cannot know for sure that you are saved, that you're going to heaven. Others say it would be the height of presumption, would it not, for me to declare that I'm going to heaven? I mean, after all, who do I think I am? Am I more righteous than other people? How dare you say that you know for sure you're going to heaven? And I've had people say that to me. Who do you think you are? To all of this confusion, I would simply like to give you God's word, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. It says this, these things are written, John the Apostle says, I write these things to you so that you might know. I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life. The purpose statement is right there in the middle of the verse. This is a so that verse. I'm writing these things so that you'll know. Nine different times in 1 John, that little epistle of just over 100 verses, John says, I write this so that you might know. In the context of progressive revelation, John's writings came at the end of the inspired canon. John wrote at the end of the first century, just before the book was finished and closed. And so at the end of this period of time, it's as though he's summing up all of this theology and says this is an important point growing in that day was gnosticism whether it was full-blown or in its infancy this belief that only a few people can know only the elite can know you've got to be part of our group to know we'll tell you the secret otherwise you can't know and john says nine times we can know we can know we can know and i've written this so you will that's the word of god Christians are incomplete, underdeveloped in their faith if they do not know that they are on their way to heaven and truly saved. Oh, it's possible for some to presume when they shouldn't. Oh, yeah, I've heard a lot of people who glibly say with smugness, oh, I'm a Christian, I prayed a prayer years ago, you know. I'll never forget the story of D.O. Moody once walking on the streets of Chicago, and he ran into a man uh, who said, Mr. Moody! Obvious that this man was filled with wine. He was drunk and, and kind of staggering. Mr. Moody, did you know that I'm one of your converts? And Moody said, you must be one of mine because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. 
That's kind of a bold statement, but it put the man in his place. Glibly will say, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm not living for Christ now. I'm not concerned. I'm not attending church. I'm not reading my Bible. I'm not praying. You know, I'm not trying to live a righteous life. But I prayed a prayer. Is that assurance of salvation? My prayer this morning, and it's, this is a difficult thing to achieve. I pray that the Spirit of God will do it. I pray that every person who has false assurance in this room today will have every prop knocked out from under them and be totally miserable. <laughs> I pray that you'll be miserable so that you can trust Christ. Because if you're believing in the wrong thing, if you think you're saved and you're not, oh, my dear friend, you're going to wake up one day and hear God say, I never knew you. Wouldn't that be a horrible thing? But I also know in a group like this, there'll be some people who never examine themselves and think everything is okay, and I pray to prayer, it doesn't make a difference how I live. There'll also be people with oversensitive consciences. And the moment I talk about, are you really saved, you're doubting it already. And you're feeling horrible, and you're saying, oh, pastor, this is going to be a horrible morning. I hate it when you do this. My prayer for you is that if you are a true child of God, the assurance of God will flow into your heart today like it never has before. For this is the promise of God. Now, Peter's writing to a group of people much like us. They're, they're a little shaken about their faith and their salvation. You remember 1 Peter, or... Yeah, the, the first epistle of Peter tells us that Peter's writing to a group of people who are dispersed throughout what is modern-day Turkey. It says in 1 Peter chapter 1 that they're in Bithynia, and they're in Cappadocia, and they're in Galatia, and they're spread out in Asia. All of these areas because of persecution. Also in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says that they are undergoing grievous temptation and their suffering is trying their faith. And because of that, some of, their, some of the individuals were having their faith shaken. When you get to 2 Peter, in chapter 2, he says, false teachers are coming, and they're going to shake your faith. They're going to cause you to doubt. And in chapter 3, scoffers are already proclaiming, where's the promise of his coming? And interjecting into the hearts of true believers sometimes this idea of doubt and question. Is he really coming? Is the word true? Am I really saved? They were shaken. So Peter wants to write so he can stabilize them. As it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, he doesn't want them to fall. He wants them to stand firm. As you look at chapter 1, uh, go down to verse 9 for a moment, will you? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. And he says this, if anyone does not have these things, or does not have them, and we'll explain what that means in a moment, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Notice he cannot see and he does not remember. Now the person in case in this situation is a believer whose sins have been forgiven, but he doesn't remember that. And he can't see it. 
There's fog in the mind. There's this sense of insecurity. There's this feeling of vagueness. Ambiguity reigns. I'm not sure if I'm really saved. How did he get into that situation? But Peter writes in verse 10, I want you to be sure. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Uncertainty in verse 9. Security and assurance and confidence in verse 10. How do we get from verse 9 to verse 10? That's what Peter is going to tell us. And, and I think maybe the best way to approach this whole subject of assurance of salvation is to think of the image of a three-legged stool. You've all seen them. We've all sat on them, right? Take one of these legs away and you're in big trouble unless you're an acrobat in the circus. You will fall. Each leg is vitally important. An assurance of salvation has three legs upon which it stands. So if this stool is assurance and setting on it is this idea of gaining confidence, what are the legs that hold up this confidence? The first one I would mention to you is faith. Faith. This is the objective test, the objective ground. In other words, the, the idea is this. We hear the gospel, it is proclaimed from the word, and we believe it. God says it, we believe it. Our faith rests upon Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. We recognize that we can't save ourselves, only God can save us. And we cry out to him in faith, Lord save me. And this is the first leg upon which assurance of salvation is based. Let's go from the writings of Peter to the writings of Paul to see this perhaps even in a clearer state. Romans chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 10 or simply look at the screen and we're going to highlight some very familiar verses. The book of Romans is a great book because it gives us the gospel of God. It starts out with all are sinners and come short of the glory of God. Then in the end of chapter 3, it begins to talk about salvation. We are justified or saved by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. He died in our place to take our sins away. And everyone who believes in him is justified by faith alone. And we gain that assurance of salvation. Then he talks about how to live as a Christian. And when he gets to chapter 10, Paul is kind of summarizing some of these things. He's talking to his own race, the Jews. And he says they, you know, they have a desire for God, but they don't understand the truth. It's not according to knowledge. And so he says, whether you're a Jew or a Greek, this is how a person gets saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you will confess with your mouth... Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, eh, you might be saved. Yeah, you, you got a shot. Is that what it says? That's how some of you read it. What does it say? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. You will be saved. There's no ambiguity there. You trust Christ 
you will be saved. End of discussion. He goes on to say, with the heart, someone believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made into salvation. I don't think it means you have to verbalize your confession to be saved. What it means is the heart truly believes and the life confesses. Your confession may be in the waters of baptism. Maybe you don't have the ability to speak, but your life declares you have trusted Christ. And you're not ashamed to own him as Lord, the one who is not ashamed to die for you. So you make the public confession. What you believe in your heart comes out in the life. It's not just a mental assent. It's committing yourself unto Jesus Christ. You hear his word. You believe his word. And you act upon his word. You trust him. Look at what verse 11 says in Romans 10. Anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will never be put to shame. Isn't that a great promise? You trust Jesus, you'll never be disappointed. You'll never regret your decision. You may decide to put all of your money into the hands of a financial planner, and this planner looked like a really good individual, and they invest your money and lose it all. And you're saying, oh, I regret that decision. I'm, I'm so sorry. I trusted them. You'll never say that about Jesus. He'll never put you to shame. What a great promise. And then verse 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, eh, maybe you'll be saved. It's not what it says. It says, you will be saved, right? Does it not say that? Am I misreading it? And so God's word is clear. His promise is open. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast you aside. If you come to Christ with genuine faith and say, Lord, save me, he will. And behind that promise is the integrity of God's character and the reliability of his word. And that's why the promise is good. I love this story in the Old Testament about Moses and the Passover. We studied it recently. You know, the, the last plague in Egypt was the death of the firstborn, right? The death angel was going to come through the land. Every eldest child of every family, Egyptian or Hebrew, will die. But God says to the Hebrews, this is what I want you to do so your sons and your daughters will live. I want you to Slay a lamb and catch its blood in a basin and then take the plant called hyssop and dip it in the bowl and put the blood on the doorposts outside of your house. And when the death angel sees the blood, he will what? Pass over. Now suppose you were the eldest in that household. Your dad gives you the news and you say, say what? Tonight, a death angel's coming through, and he's killing the firstborn. That's me. Father says, don't worry about it. Easy for you to say, Dad, you're not the firstborn. I'm in trouble. Well, there's a provision for God. God said if we kill an, an unspotted lamb, catch his blood, and put it on the doorpost, the death angel will pass by. That's what God said. That's what he said. Dad, I'll help you. And so here they are, you know, getting the blood in the basin and putting it on the door, and the dad applies some of the blood, and the dad goes in the house. The son's putting on a second coat, you know, to make sure everything is covered. Throws the whole basin of blood on the door. 
goes inside, locks the door with every latch he can, hides under the bed, shaking to death for what's going to happen that night. And when the death angel comes by, he sees the sun shaking and takes his life? No, he sees the blood. That's all he sees is the blood. And he passes over. The trembling sinner feareth that God will ne'er forget, but one full payment cleareth his memory of all debt. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he wipes your sin away forever. And if you're under the blood, your faith may be weak and it may be shaking, but if it's in the word of God and the person of Christ, you are saved and you can't lose it. And that's the promise of God. The wonderful, objective promise of God. But there's another leg in this illustration, and we'll call this the leg of life. And what it means is if any person is in Christ, he is a new what? Creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. There's been a radical transformation in the true believer's life. The Holy Spirit has given new life to that individual, and now that individual thinks differently, has different desires and goals, and begins to live differently. This is the external test, and this is what Peter is talking about. We come back to 2 Peter chapter 1, and we read that God has given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Look at verse 1. Those who through the righteousness of God our Father and Jesus our Lord, or Jesus our Savior, same person, have received a faith as precious as ours. Have you received the faith? Have you embraced Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If you do, if you have, this is what God wants for you. Verse 2. God wants grace and peace to be multiplied in your life. He wants you to have grace and peace in a Abundance, more than you need, filling your life, grace and peace. Isn't that great? That's God's desire for you. But that's not always the case with many of us. So God has given to us everything that we need to live a godly life. That's the first four verses. And then he says in verse 5, but I want you to add something. So God's side, the first four verses, and then, as it were, our side our responsibility, we need to add to our faith. God wants to multiply grace and peace to us. We are to add to our faith. That's biblical math. Add to your faith. Not that your faith is deficient uh, in the sense of imperfect or uh, uh, somehow defiled. Your faith needs to grow. It needs to mature. It needs to be developed. So add to your faith goodness in your soul and knowledge in your mind, self-control in your life and perseverance in your heart, godliness in your acts and brotherly kindness and love in your deeds. Add these things to your faith. God has planted it in. Now it's your responsibility to develop those things and add them in your life on the outside, okay? Now, what will happen if we do that? Well, verse 8 says, if you possess 
these qualities. That is, if they are in you and in increasing measure. I'm so thankful God said, yeah, you have to have 50% before you're ever going to be assured that you're my child. You have to reach the level of 75% goodness before others will get a clue that you might be different. The Bible simply says it needs to be in you and increasing. That's the same standard for a child as it is for an adult. Right? It's there and growing. That's what God wants to see. My faith is not what it should be. My life is not expressing the glory and virtue of God like it should be. But I need to possess these things and grow in them. And if I do, verse 8 says, they'll keep me from being ineffective and unproductive. The Greek word for ineffective is the word argos, which means lazy or inactive. Or I like this, unemployed. So there are some people who live their Christian life inactive when it comes to adding these seven things. If you add them, you will be employed and productive. You will be fruitful. And that means that the knowledge of God is going to be to you like an open channel of wonderful grace. And God will give you more knowledge of himself and you'll grow. Verse 9, but if you don't add these things, these seven virtues to your life, you're going to be nearsighted. This is where we get the English word myopia. Myopia is a medical condition where the eye has difficulty seeing things at a distance, right? You can only be nearsighted. You can only see things up close. You're myoptic. And some people are that way spiritually. They, they can't see afar off. They can't see the whole picture. And verse 9 says these people are not only nearsighted, they're blind. They've truly been forgiven, but they don't see it. Which leads me to say this. If you're a true Christian and you're not adding these seven things to your life, you're not going to have full assurance of faith. It's going to be shaken. Or let me put it this way. If you're not a real Christian, you pray to prayer, but you're not adding these things to your life and you really don't even care. Why do you think that you are a Christian? This is the mark of a real child of God. Some of you, you maybe prayed a prayer when you were younger and and there's been no fruit. There's been no desire to follow after God. The word of God has no control in your life. You don't want to meet with the people of God. You're not earnest about knowing more about Christ. Are you saved? Yep, I'm saved. I pray a prayer. prayed a prayer years ago. How do you know you're saved? You can't have full assurance if you're not growing. That's what Peter says. If, if these things aren't in you and increasing, you're going to be nearsighted and blind. And you won't know if you're really saved. Does that frighten you? Does that shake you a little bit? Again, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I hope it does. This is the second standard. My life needs to be different. There needs to be the evidence of God's grace that others see. 
There needs to be the virtue and glory of God that begins to transform me. I'm not perfect. A righteous person falls seven times but gets up again. I'll not be all I should be, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I used to be. And I have God's spirit in my soul, and I'm growing by grace. Then you'll be fruitful. And it's through much fruit that we glorify God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, this is a remarkable thing. The more we do for him, the more certain we are of him. The more we seek to walk in Christ, the more that assurance begins to flood our soul. No wonder you're having a problem with assurance of salvation if you have no desire about walking in God's grace and growing in your Christian life. This is a frightening message to a lot of modern-day evangelicalism that is at ease in Zion and content with being inactive and satisfied with being unproductive. It's a scary thing. For there is a judgment, Matthew 7 says, where many people will say, Lord, did we not do this in your name? Did we not do that in your name? And the Lord will say, I never knew you. Sorry, you were close. You sat at South Church with a lot of other believers. You sang the same songs and bowed your head when they were praying, but you and I both know you didn't mean it. Why do you think I would let you into heaven when you never trusted me before? What a scary judgment. But Peter says, I don't want that to happen to you. I want you, verse 10, to make your calling and election sure. So let me add one third leg, uh, third leg to this too. Oh, I forgot a verse. 1 John chapter 3. Let's look at that just for a moment. Before we look at the third leg. Remember, 1 John tells us time and time again, you can know, you can know, you can know. John says, dear children, let us not love with words only, with tongue only, but let us love with actions and in truth. In other words, let's not just say, but let's do. Let's demonstrate. And this is how we know that we belong to the truth. That our life is displaying the virtues of the one we call Savior and Lord. That his spirit in our hearts is beginning to conform our life to the beautiful picture of Jesus himself. We're a long way from being there, but by the grace of God we're growing. Now the third leg. We'll call this spirit. Spirit. The objective test is faith. God said, believe in me, I believe, I'm saved. The external test is life. God said, add these things to the faith, and if you do, your insurance, your assurance of salvation will increase. It will be solidified. There will be a confidence that the Spirit of God gives to your soul, and the evidence will be seen to others. Now the last is the witness of the Spirit in our hearts. And I go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. For we're told in that portion of Scripture that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the child of God. This is the subjective test or the internal test. It's not objective. It's not external. It's something that happens in my soul. And it's a joint witness, the Greek tells us. That means it's between God's spirit and mine. 
Paul said earlier in Romans 8, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you've not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry out, Abba, Father. And it is the Spirit himself who bears witness with our human spirit and tells us, yes, you're the real deal. Yeah, this is mystical. I don't know how to explain it, except it's internal and it's the work of God. I've believed his word. By his grace, I'm growing and there's some evidence there. And internally, his spirit confirms that I'm his child. There's a witness, his spirit to my spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit is the one convicting you of your sin, making you miserable, making you uncomfortable as the word is preached. And you begin to doubt your relationship. The spirit brings conviction upon those who need to deal with sin. But he brings sweet comfort to those who apply the word of God to their life and by faith seek to honor God and trust him. The spirit bears witness with our spirit. 1 John chapter 3, verse 24. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave to us. 1 John 4, verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us his spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is working internally to uh, cause us to cry out, yes, you are my father. Yes, I am your child. Lloyd-Jones went on to say this verse, if any verse in all the Bible, constitutes the hallmark of the evangelical Christian, the Spirit's confirmation from within. So we get to verse 10. Therefore, based on all of this, make your calling and election sure. It doesn't mean determine your calling and election. That's something God does. Ultimate eternal salvation, the ultimate eternal sense of our calling and our election, that's God's work. That's God's action. Peter's not telling them to choose themselves. You see, in the Bible, there is this work of God in our salvation that's called election and choosing. And there's the human side called repentance and faith. And the Bible doesn't always harmonize the two to eliminate the mystery. And I think we need to embrace them both, even though there's still tension. Don't deny one doctrine to establish the other. And this word elect is used some 13 times in the NIV translation of the New Testament. Twice it talks about the process of election, once in Romans 9, once in Romans 11, and it refers to the nation of Israel. But the other times, it's the, the name is used for God's people, the elect of God. That's the way Peter uses it in his first epistle. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2, we're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. These are the people that God has chosen and made his own. Yes, they have repented and believed, but they're the people of God. So we don't determine our calling and election. We make sure that it's happened. 
How do you make sure something so mysterious? Peter's made it abundantly clear. Add these things to your faith. When you add these things to your faith, you're active and fruitful, and you're able to see as things really are spiritually. And you'll have that sense from the Spirit of God that, yes, you are a child of God. That's what we're going after. The writings of Harry Ironside have helped me a lot in this whole area because when I first came to faith in Christ, I really struggled with assurance of salvation. If you go back in my journals and small Bibles, you will probably find six or seven dates where I got saved. And the reason that happened is because I thought I lost it and needed to get it back again. And I wasn't all that I should be and measured God's acceptance of me based on my performance instead of based on what Christ has done. Harry Ironside was a Christian who grew up in the Salvation Army movement that believed you could lose your salvation. And he honestly tried to live a godly life to keep his salvation, but it sent him to an insane asylum. He was actually committed to a hospital because he was losing his mind. It was there he studied the book of Romans and saw that our righteousness is not what we do, it's what God does. We accept it by faith, and it's the righteousness of Jesus that can't be improved upon. And he wrote a little book called Full Assurance of Faith. Full Assurance. And that book helped me so much. To get my eyes off of myself and on Christ. That's where it needs to be, first of all. Secondly, yes, there does need to be some evidence of change, but it won't be perfect. It needs to be genuine and growing. And then thirdly, to understand the witness of the Holy Spirit who bears witness through the Word of God that we are indeed children of God and radically changed. Ironside then became a preacher who pastored the Moody Church for many years and proclaimed that salvation is the work of God, not the work of man. It's the gift of God. You receive it by faith alone. But everyone who receives it, their faith doesn't remain alone. Their faith becomes active. And that's what James meant when he said we're justified by works. Not in the sense of righteous before God, but in the sense that our faith is genuine. It works. And Ironside's writings have held to this wonderful truth that I'm saved by faith alone in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Peter says it this way. Verse 2, God wants you to experience grace and peace multiplied in abundance. He wants you, verse 8, to have a productive and fruitful life. In verse 10, he never wants you to fall like Peter fell. And he wants you to receive that rich welcome, verse 11, that is offered to everyone who is a true child of God and walking in his ways. You will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That picture of rich welcome was the same picture the Greeks used when one of their victorious Olympians would come back to his home state, his home city, and be given something like a ticker tape parade. A lavished welcome. A wonderful welcome home celebration. That's what God has for his children. I think Daniel Whittle said it best when he said... I know not why God's wondrous grace 
to me he hath made known. Nor why Christ in his boundless love redeem me for his own. I know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I know not how the Spirit moves convicting men of sin, revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith within. But I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Do you know that you're saved? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow acknowledging our weakness and sinfulness before a holy and righteous God, despairing of ever getting into heaven on our own good deeds. But hearing your love story in the cross, you loved us so much, you sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin, and now all who believe in him are saved forever and for sure. The evidence is seen in simply believing, in a radically changed life and a desire to walk like Christ, and in that witness of the Holy Spirit that says, I am his and he is mine. Lord, give assurance to true believers today, to those who have not yet trusted Christ May they clearly see they're outside of the salvation of God. They're outside of that gift of eternal life. They're under just wrath and judgment and condemnation until they flee to Christ who died in their place to give them life that never ends. Lord, let them see it today until they come to believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen.